This is the best of the Joan Hamburg Show, the first lady of New York radio. Best of. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show, and what a treat to have the one and only Melissa Errico. You know Melissa as an actress. You may have seen her as Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady and One Touch of Venus. That's a Kurt Wilde play. So many more. She sings. She records. She writes. Actually, she's become a contributing writer to the New York Times. Her Sondheim albums are spectacular. Anyway, she's amazing. She's got three girls and a husband and does absolutely does it all. And today we are celebrating this Tony Award nominee, an exciting new album. And this is just released. It's not only album, it's video, Feinstein's, the 18th and the 19th. Everything exciting is happening right now. Melissa, sometimes all the things you do and then more stuff keeps coming, and it's all good. So and creativity, yeah. I've been making a lot of things. I'm so happy to be here. I always love talking to you. Um, so, yes, I have a new album called Out of the Dark, the film noir project. Very exciting. Yeah. Out of the Dark is a sort of an homage to one of my favorite old movies. Remember Out of the Past? Of course. That great uh, that beautiful uh, movie with Jane Greer and Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas. Um, she's a very wicked woman <laughs> in that movie, right. but out of the past is a wonderful and enigmatic, amazing movie. And, um, I made, uh, an album that's a kind of, uh, tribute to that time and that aesthetic, but also that might, um, have a modern side to it. They're very mesmerizing movies that have lots of beautiful music associated. But I also felt while I was living in the pandemic, you know, as we all have been, um, I had a diversion, which was to watch film noir movies. I have three kids doing remote schooling. I was going to pull my hair out. I don't know how you did that. <laughs> I was like, it was crazy, Joan. Ugh. And, uh, you know, everybody was suddenly in remote schooling, remote ballet. I had to set mm. up a ballet. I had two classical ballerinas in the house, and they were in two different rooms doing classical ballet. And my tennis oh, player no. was playing tennis against the um, – the uh, shutters of the house. She was out on the lawn playing tennis against the shutters and not hitting the glass because oh, no. that's how good she is. <laughs> so we had this like crazy, keeping the children active, keeping their lives um, positive. And immediately when the pandemic hit, my husband got the virus. Oh, did and he virus, have a bad case? He had a significant case of the virus. And this was at a time where you couldn't get tested. You didn't know what it was. No, it was none the of very us. first we were scared. Case. It was March 19th, March 17th, right around there. And then he couldn't get a test. And my father, who went to Vietnam, my father said to put him in the basement. So I well, put him in the basement. You can't make this up. This is a movie. Uh, and I, I had him in the basement for a month. And I had the three daughters upstairs, and it was crazy. I had to cook 35 meals a week. Oh, and leave it at the door. Oh, it was a lot. It was just a lot. I had the and fresh director because we couldn't go shopping. And I mm. would, you know, get once, you know, I would organize my shopping list and get the once a week delivery and hope it came and keep feeding everyone and supporting everyone. And when the when it became midnight, Joan, I I Went crazy. would watch <laughs> these old movies. I know this sounds crazy, but it was my escape. 
And I would watch these movies and I would look at Jane Greer and Lauren Bacall and I would get lost in these films. And and that was a, a whole different thing, Melissa. Noir, that, that's a different sensibility from a lot of movies. Well, we're oh, talking about unique. what, the 40s? We're talking about the 40s. And, you know, it's what's interesting and what became interesting over these last 18 months, you know, uh, was that I realized that these movies were made at the end of the Second World War and in that time. And you would think that coming out of a hard time, there would be optimistic art and happy art. But this, this is an aesthetic that was very European. A lot of uh, German emigre uh, directors, you know, people who had escaped Hitler, and uh, they brought this European um, uh, aesthetic, sort of known as uh, uh, German expressionism, really, and this sort of dark uh, uh, sensibility. And they put it in these movies, and these movies were very alluring and very dangerous. There were gangsters and existential lines about life and um so it came out of a hard time and the more i watched the movies i realized we were in america in another hard time the human race is in a hard time and i just looked at this artistic movement and i thought wow i really feel some i was feeling it i was feeling the isolation the sorrow the longing Mm. to be together uh and the feeling you don't know who to trust and you're losing your footing you know, in your lo- in life, and the right. city being empty and scary. Right, the city being uh, lost its soul a lot during yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah, and that aesthetic felt important to me, and I felt like exploring it. I was given the great opportunity by a wonderful woman, and one of the great women like you, a New York superstar, Marie Monique, uh, uh, the uh, president of the French Institute Alliance Française. She's a great New Yorker. She's a mature woman of the highest intelligence. And I was so blessed. She asked me to do a series during the pandemic. She says, we can't have anything on our stages. We have no French artists we could bring here. Could you do a Franco-American series? Wait, virtually, right? Virtually. So I did Mm -hmm. a series of three concerts with the unbelievably brilliant writer Adam Gopnik from oh the my New Yorker. God. How did magazine. you get hooked up with Adam? He's a wonderful How did I hook works up with Adam? the New Yorker. He works for the New Yorker. He's one of the great intellectuals of the world and poetic souls, really, of the world. But he is also um, uh, a writer of musicals and lyrics. And I was in a play of his called Our Table, which he wrote with David Shire, helped mm. him develop it. So he's actually a wonderful musical theater uh, personality, as well as all the other great gifts that he has. He won the Légion d'honneur this year for his mm-hmm. writing about French things and um, um, important things, really. So he's very special. So we met doing a musical, but I enlisted him for this series. And the third um, theme of the series was film noir. So we've all, we did a performance, a live stream. With about all those classics. Mm-hmm. With all the classics, you know, like Again and Laura and... Um, uh, check in my heart and um, all kinds of beautiful songs from even Broadway with every breath I take and some other David Raxon music and jazz standards like detour ahead. Um, so we had a, we had a concert already and then I decided to turn it into an album. And the more the pandemic went on and on, the more and I endless. felt I would, it was endless. It is endless. And the more I felt like capturing the, 
the emotions really of mm-hmm. of despair and hope and hope renewed right. and the dark and light of life, you know, in music. And, so and in music and art, that was a great period of a great art during period. that time. And, and you know what's interesting, Joan? It's not even what's what's interesting about that time when you say that was a great period. Yes, the German expressionist cinema, this this uh, the Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity, mm. all these great movies like Laura. It, it's an incredible sensibility, but where you know there's a lot of desire and doom mm. entangling over and over again. But also, what I figured out is that noir exists everywhere and always since. It became a sensibility. There's Japanese noir now. There's Scandinavian noir. There's Italian noir. People are still making movies they, they call noir. People are making music that's got the noir vibe. So Which, noir is an emotional, um, it's an emotional field, really. It's an emotion that passes from the 40s all the way up till, I'm going to say, you know, to my concert, really. You know, it's, right. it's alive, and, yeah. And all the angst that we all have, noir yes. is the perfect expression yes. for angst all and of longing. this. Yes, anxiety um, and sensuality. You know, it's kind of enchanting, but it's also despairing music. So um, the album, I hope, you know, will give people all this to think about and ruminate about and argue about. There's debates about what is noir is that a noir movie? Is this a noir movie? Uh, as long as you're lonely and locked away, it's noir. <laughs> right. And it was an era that was so different. And But it was a time, too. In those days, we would go to clubs and hear all this great jazz and all all this yeah. kind of music. And not necessarily people who were household names. It was all part of what was going on in the world. And it was lonely too, but you shared it through this expression. Yes. And you know, the cabaret singer is a great figure in all these movies. The idea of the femme fatale, of course, is in every film, there's a femme fatale. And sometimes there's, she is also a cabaret singer or there's a cabaret singer, but this idea of the singular woman who you're not sure you trust and you know, she's not perfectly happy. She's suffering, but she's still going to love this man. Even if she destroys her life, does something wrong. It's uh, an idea, the femme fatale. And some of the femme fatale is really exciting. And we think, wow, I want to be like, you know, um, Jane Greer or Lauren Bacall, but also there were some hard things about, um, their lives. And I hope too to, I cut uh, the verse, for example, to blame it on my youth, which is a great Oscar Levant song that kind of uh, predates the noir period a little. Um, But he was a very noir figure, Oscar Levant. And there's a verse that says, um, I was like a toy that you preferred to throw away. And it's this kind of bad feeling about being a toy that a man plays with and throws away at will and I cut the verse and I just sang the the body of the song because I also wanted to see if I could um, not erase the, the sexism of, of the time but, but re- rethink what the femme fatale of, of 2022 might be you know, and update there it, it is, a little bit Let me ask you too because you made me laugh and I think, I think it was one of your New York Times uh, essays and pieces <laughs> it was about 
going to this famous Broadway costumer. Yeah. And, you know, people don't realize that the theater industry is is so big. It's more than just, you know, actors, actresses. It's the people who make the clothes, the shoes, the, everyone backstage. And you describe mm-hmm. to go for your fitting or try to get something to wear for yeah. these special events. To be the events. femme fatale. Yes. I realized a, when I was doing the French, uh, the French, institute version of this um before i made the album i did that that live stream and i i realized to be a femme fatale you need to be very well dressed and i don't have you know a wardrobe that's up to lauren bacall's um especially those years when we were all locked (laughs) up oh these beautiful clothes and i thought what how am i going to pull this off you know on stage and i um i called a friend of mine eric winterling who's does famous. the costumes for the Phantom of the Opera. He does the costumes for Frozen. He does the costumes for Mrs. Maisel's television show. And um, he's a remarkable, gifted, you know, he's a genius. And I called him and I said, listen, I have this live stream. I have to look like a femme fatale. But I'm not even feeling very, I didn't feel very fit at the time. And I was thinking maybe um. Sleeveless dresses might not be that becoming. Maybe I should wear sleeves. <laughs> and it's a scary thing, isn't it, when you go from no sleeves your whole life to sleeves? It's like a it's passing really of time. I know. Life is really marked by the whole period Arms. of your life where you had no sleeves and then the period where you start wanting sleeves. Exactly. But, Think Michelle Obama. What did everyone talk about? They talked about her upper arms. arms. So. I know. How do you think she got those arms, by the way? Well, not Did by me up? opening the fridge and eating candy. <laughs> <laughs> and neither me taking care of all these kids, yeah. making chickens and things, yeah. you know, and, and banana bread during the, the pandemic. Oh, <laughs> so anyway, I felt a little bit in a pickle, you know, trying to look like um, a femme fatale, you know, in the short notice with no budget. So I called a friend and I came by with some dresses. I thought maybe you could throw some sleeves on them. Right. <laughs> he, he just looked at everything and said, what a mess. And he said, I'll make you a dress. And um, so he brought in one of his associates who was a, a woman, an Eastern European woman. She comes in and she's very talented and she has the measure, you know, the, she's measuring me and she's getting under my arm and mm. under everything. And um, we're having a nice little time together. And I said, this is all very nice of you. I said, to make this dress. I felt so silly. You know, I'm being examined and measured by this mm. world-class woman. And I said, this is so sweet. And she said, ah, I haven't seen an actor in a year. Oh, and I thought, course. wow. And okay. there were 38 empty sewing machines. You mm. know, and I, I looked around and I thought, wow, this is a story. I, I realized my little live stream is, you know, of whatever consequence, but the idea that all these talented people haven't seen an actor in a year and they were happy right. to do it. Oh. And Think I, of all those empty machines for so long. Oh, and... All those empty machines. So I, I, I proposed to the New York Times a story about the making of the femme fatale dress. Uh, not only the foibles of dealing with my insecurities and so on, but, um, but the people who were out of work and the whole industry that got shut down and how they survived. And Eric Winterling had one production of Frozen happening in Japan. Oh, so thank he goodness. used to keep, well, thank goodness. And what he would do is he would take the dress for Elsa, the beautiful beaded dress, and he would, whoever does the beading, he would drive the dress to that woman's house. She would do the beading, mm. and then he would pick it up and he would drive it to the other lady 
she would do the hem, and then he would pick it up and he would drive it to the other person who would dye it in their house. And these dresses were made because no one could be together. They were made by him driving the clothes all around New Jersey and mm. you know Long Island and incredible perseverance and keeping his business going. And so, you got your gorgeous dress. And I did. So I, I you know, that dress is, is on stage at 54 below, you know, this weekend. And, um, you know, hopefully it looks sharp and uh, to everybody. And I feel glamorous. And so I'll take everyone, you know, uh, with this record and with all the concerts this weekend and all the future concerts back in time, but also maybe right into your own mind now. You know, no, it's fantastic. Hopefully. And let me remind everyone, Melissa, I'm talking to Melissa Erico, and she has an incredible new album. It's with Warner Music, Ghostlight Records. It's called Out of the Dark, The Film Noir Project. And you can go see Melissa at Feinstein's, and you can go And you can listen, buy the music, you know. Buy like the on music. Amazon and iTunes and Apple Music. and Oh, um, it's gorgeous. I everywhere. listen to it. It's you know, really beautiful. There's a yeah. website your readers might be interested in. I created a website so that all the ideas and the imagery, the dress, the essay I wrote, everything is in one place. And it's called thefilmnoirproject.com. Hmm. Now, so do the girls yeah. sing? Because they have their wonderfully gifted mother. They have their tennis gifted daddy. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, their ballet the stars or their yeah. actors. Well, the two two ballerinas and a tennis player, but the ballerinas take um, one takes piano and guitar, and one uh, just does guitar. The girl who does the piano used to play the ukulele because I they're twins, you see, and I I always was afraid mm. to have to give them the same instrument. I wanted them to feel unique. So Diana got stuck with the ukulele for years, and her twin Juliet said she's going to get a job. <laughs> as like a hula girl or something, you know, in like a hotel in Hawaii oh, or something. So you know, <laughs> so Juliet doesn't like the sound of the ukulele, so she made fun of Diana for so long that she plays this silly sounding thing. They're terrible to each other in a funny way. So now Diana has moved on to to proper guitar, and they sing and they do Taylor Swift in the house. Oh, great! I love it. I I overreact every time they make anything resembling music. I go, oh. <laughs> but you got that from your father, too. I did. I did. And you know, Joan, this is the perfect button to this interview. My father, who was a concert pianist, he went and to a Yale. Doctor. Yep. He went to Yale as an Italian-American in the 50s. He did not feel like he fit in at a posh kind of school like that. He was a scholarship student. He had an uh, amazing gift. But he never, you know, with Vietnam and with all the concerns about, you know, survival and money, and he never became a uh, professional artist. And but when he was at Yale, and um, he wasn't invited into the social clubs, he wasn't a part of this high society. He worked as a um, pianist, and he played the dances. Mm-hmm. And my mother went to the convent school on the hill in New Haven. She was not exactly a convent girl. She went. <laughs> Born in Brooklyn, loved to wear leopards. She had the hoop earrings, and she was not very 50s. She was, she was, she had a, my mother was, she was doing things behind the back. She used to put her mascara on when the nuns weren't looking, she said. Mm. Anyhow, she came down to uh, dance, and my father was 
the working musician, and he, he was, was playing Laura. He was playing the piano, and he was playing Laura. Mm-hmm. And my mother turned to her date, and she said, who's that? And he said, oh, that's Mike Errico. He's taken. And my mother didn't believe a word, and she walked right up to the piano. <laughs> and that's how my parents met, over one of these noir songs. That's so funny, funny. right? That's funny, funny yeah. but obviously the gene is right there, strong as ever. Romantics, yeah. The my music parents gene. are romantics. My dad sent me, um, he sent me flowers for Valentine's Day, and it said, I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you for being such an exciting daughter. <laughs> well, Isn't that cute? <laughs> that, it's a, that's the kind of daddy that everyone wants. Oh, it's really I nice. I know, it's yeah. so special. Well, I'm very excited for you. I love to hear all of this good news. You can you. get the album, the music, anywhere this is sold. The full album is out there, and it is gorgeous. And you can always read Melissa, too. She's in the Times with very right-on funny articles, is happy to share her life. And keep in touch. I want to know what other wonderful things are happening. There's no one like you, Joan. We'll talk again and say hello to your family. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WAVC. Before I go to bed, I take a bath. I look at my wonderful bathtub, the great tile, and I thank my lucky stars that I found Bath Fitter. Make your bathroom, your bathtub, a fabulous-looking, great place. I'm in love with Bath Fitter. You, too, can have a Bath Fitter, a bathroom that you're involved in. You sit down with these people. Treat yourself to luxury. No mess installing, no demolition. This is done in a day and custom crafted. Bath Fitter in business for over 36 years. Bath Fitter has a lifetime warranty. Great financing options. Call Bath Fitter today. You tell them Joan Hamburg sent you. You want what she has. 877-792-BATH. 877-792-BATH. Best of. This is the best of the Joan Hamburg Show. I haven't talked to Melissa Rivers, Joan's daughter, in a long time. And then, of course, her new book came out, Lies My Mother Told Me, Tall Tales from a Short Woman. And I got the biggest kick out of it. I heard Joan in her daughter's voice. Melissa, your mom would have loved this book. And been so proud of you. Enjoyed every minute of it. And what a perfect time. Because we all thought Joan Rivers right at the Oscars when that little incident happened with the slap that people are still talking about. Absolutely. You know, my running joke has been she would have said thank you for the new house. Because there's so much material. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I'm sure... That when that happened, your phone started ringing like crazy. What would Joan Rivers have done? Oh, it's been it's been nonstop. She you know, she would have been horrified. I mean, you knew her well enough to know that would have absolutely just just she would have been so upset. Well, you know, as much as your mother was in someone's face, if she had to be, she never 
really, as far as I knew, ever exhibited any kind of really bad behavior. I can't imagine her ever even thinking of anything like that. Oh, no, not never. But I do think it would be frightening to her, as it is, I think, to a lot of comedians that it's now almost open season. Dangerous, right. Right, Very. it's dangerous. By the way, if you've just joined me, I'm talking to Melissa Rivers, and Melissa is herself an award-winning personality on TV. She's a producer. She's written best-selling books. And the newest, Lies My Mother Told Me, Tall Tales from a Short Woman, is really funny. And it's, it's Joan, and it's this mother-daughter joined at the hip. And it's funny because even growing up, the three of you, your dad, your mom, and you, you were a really tight unit. And whatever your mother did, traveling all the time on the road, you, I always got the feeling, did you ever feel like you were the deserted kid or no? Oh, God, no. You know, there were points, you know, where my parents were the parents that made it to every game. And when you're a teenager, you're like, oh, please stop already. Right. Give no, me a we break. Were, we, there, I never felt that way at all. Even as an adult, I was like, God, too much. Like. You know, leave me alone. <laughs> well, she actually moved in with you at a time, I remember. Yeah, she was but living with uh, Cooper and me probably three days a week, sometimes four, when we were doing Fashion Police and the reality show and all, all that all at once. So she she was very much in the house. Well, and your mom, and it, it's actually in the book. But she had this tradition that you included called Grandma Week. She was obsessed with your child. And that was so, everyone who knew her was like, we can't believe that's Joan Rivers. She worshipped that little boy, now a big boy. Yeah, he's 21. I know, hard to believe. Cooper is 21 and a junior at Berkeley. Mm. And does he want to go into the family entertainment world? No, he's much more interested in new media mm-hmm. and is a media studies major. So he he's really into sort of the next wave uh, of of all of that. He has you know no desire to be in front of the camera, and he's much more interested in in this whole sort of wild west of the new world of entertainment. Right, and it is it's a new language all over again. Yes. So that's where his head is at. Yeah, but that, but it's okay. And he and your mom had this incredible relationship. I loved Melissa. It was a Rivers Melissa line when your mom took Cooper on these trips. And when she told him on one of their adventures that they had to leave the Vatican and instead now go to the seat of Judaism. And when the kid looked at her and said, Jerusalem, Grandma. And your mother said, no, sweetheart, Bloomingdale's. It was just so perfect. <laughs> right? That, who's, that was a perfect Joan Rivers line. Yeah, I had so much fun writing the book. And people keep, and, and, and you knew my mom, so you understood the humor in it. People keep saying, did she really say and do these things? And she I'm did. like, no, this was this 
this this this is a very hyper realistic. No, she never told me I had a secret brother who was perfect named Melvin. You know, <laughs> she really did tell know the story of the real Thanksgiving. She didn't tell me that the pilgrims were bad guests because they moved the place cards. You know. <laughs> so, you know, people keep saying, "Well, what's true in it?" I'm like, "Well, we had Thanksgiving. There was Grandma Week." She did like going to theater, but no, she did not meet the Pope at, at on Broadway. <laughs> she would have in her head because she had a uh, lot 100%, to say. 100%. 100%. No. In her head, all of this could have happened. No, which is funny. But I get the feeling she didn't really push you, right? I mean, you made a lot of choices that were your choices. It wasn't like her... Sort of saying, you got to do this, you got to do that. You know, I think every parent in their own way pushes their child, and you just have to sort of know your audience. And Mm -hmm. her whole thing was, I would eventually come around to what she wanted me to do. And believe me, when I didn't, I, I would hear about it. But she, you know, just like I know how to handle my son, she knew how to handle me. And, and push me in the direction she thought was best. But every right. every parent knows how to how to you know, I how to manipulate their child. No, you know, I know with Cooper you, what I I know with Cooper what I need to how say. To deal. I know. Yeah, you know, I'm, we just had a conversation the other day where he was making sort of this very declarative statement about something about his future and I'm like okay I mean all I can tell you is from my experience this is what I did and this is how it worked out for me and you can make your own decisions and I can only tell you what I went through and from my point of view how I got there and you know two days later he's like you know I think you're right I'm like yeah so with him I know I always have to be like look this is this was my experience Right. And your mom taught you no matter what, that funny is funny and you have to laugh even during tragic moments to get through. And you do that, too, with your own. I mean, the loss of your mom was not only devastating to you, but to your son. He had this incredible relationship with his grandmother. 100 percent. And. I had to, you know, get him through it, which I think in hindsight helped me get through it Mm -hmm. because I couldn't fall apart. I had this little person to take care of. So, you know, it, 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 you know, my, my parents always taught me really about focus on the important part of it and you'll get through it. You don't, no one, you know, in our family, we were, we were like, okay, you're allowed your moment. Now get up and put one foot in front of the other. And what I found so interesting is, you know, I've always been very, very strong. And so many of my mom's friends would say, like, we're shocked. And I wanted to be like, why? Why are you shocked that I'm coping? Right. That and you're I, strong I, I, and I, you're like living your life. And I... I found that fascinating. Well, why do you think that was? For the life of me, I don't know. 
because those and, and these were some of the people who are very close to our family. And I think, I don't know, maybe they were channeling or projecting their own emotions. But I remember sitting, believe it or not, at the first Thanksgiving after my mother passed and them saying, well, we're so impressed that you didn't fall apart. And we all assumed we were going to be picking you up off the floor. And I literally was like, do you know where I come from? Right. You know, you've known me almost my whole life. I'm, I'm shocked that you would think that. And uh, to this day, I can't get my head around that. But you also say, okay, you know, maybe they're projecting, you know, and take it as they're proud of how I'm handling it. You know, sometimes when there's an only child, you know, people who are looking in can't quite accept the fact that, yeah, that child is independent, that child has a life, despite her closeness to her family, her mother and her father. And you've always been your own person and done what you wanted. But a lot of people just don't get that. Just like, you know, I remember, Melissa, the first time I went to your mother's house, I it was I still remember feeling shocked because, you know, the Joan Rivers that you see on the stage or at a club or stand up and always funny and right there and cutting. This house was this gracious, gorgeous, genteel, you know, beautiful China and everything. You you didn't realize Joan Rivers had a lot of faces. And one of them was. Right. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And just to go back for a sec, because it just kind of dawned on me in a sort of strange way. I think one of the reasons people that was so shocking to me that people really thought that I wanted to turn around and say, do you know my family? Do you think, you know, the, the worst thing I could do in my mother's memory was not cope and fall apart that would be so disrespectful of right. how that's I was perfect raised. way mm-hmm. no you, you know you are your mother's daughter and she would expect nothing less than picking yeah. up those reins and being strong and giving that gift to your own child exactly exactly no because both of you went through a lot. And also, I mean, you know, your mom hung out with the royals too. A lot of people forget that, right? Someone just asked me my opinion on all that. And I'm like, everyone forgets that families have fights. Theirs is just being, you know, yes, they're held to a different, you know, expectation Mm -hmm. in decorum, but everyone forgets families have fights. And they're a family. No, they are a family that's gone way back and they understand how important it is to hold itself together. And I'm sure that when your dad passed away, that was a horrendous thing. And I'm sure that as this child who was strong but very sensitive, you felt a lot of anger and rage too because you didn't know what else, right? 
Yeah, but that's very typical when when someone loses someone to suicide. There's a lot of there's a lot of a lot. There's a lot of you know. First, you go through the guilt, then you go through the rage, then you go through the what we what I call the if onlys and beat yourself up, and then you go back to you know being pissed off again, and then you 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 hopefully make some peace with it. And as I always say to people, I loved my father. I respected my father. Do I think what he did was really, really, really shitty? Yeah. But it doesn't mean I loved him any less. Right. No, no. And your father was a brilliant, brilliant guy. Yeah. And and you depression, know? no one really, unless you go through it, or live through it with a family member, understand the complexity of it and the depths of it and well, what it does. In, but also back in 87, people didn't talk about it. Uh-huh. It was, a no. va- it was a vastly different landscape than it is now. But you got through it, and your mom got through it. And You know, again, you know, and, what were the choices? The choice was no. to get through it. But you remember all the good things, and that's what's important. Of you course. take the good, and you leave out yeah. the bad. And yeah, you know exactly. the and other. That's a lot with with my parenting, and I think that's everybody. You try and take the good from your childhood and what you feel your parents did right, and you try and jettison the bad. But you know, Melissa, your mother always thought that you were a really great parent. And she always, and she talked about it. And I always had the feeling that she was a great parent too, but it's just a different thing. She looked at your style of parenting with such admiration. Well, she used to always say to me, you're such a better parent than I was. And I would always be like, I don't think that's a thought you should be sharing with me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe one should let it in her inside voice stay inside you know what i mean but she couldn't she I'm couldn't not, do that like, i i understand the compliment but you gotta understand kind of what you're saying to me you know what i mean that always used to make me laugh i'm like really are you trying to send me back into therapy oh that's so funny but it it was with pride you know, you I should know, see but, my kid. What? But, yeah, you hard. know, again, I don't think we should be sh- saying, wow, I, there were times I was a really shitty parent. <laughs> that, oh, my gosh. That was really funny. And when I think of all the holidays, and you do that, too, that your mom had, where if someone was alone, even if it wasn't her best friend, but it was, it would hurt her. You know, and she would definitely make sure they were included. And your 100%. mother wasn't ex- I, right. She, go ahead, Melissa. I I still have these big Thanksgivings, just like she did, and you know, all the bring out all the dishes that that we used, and you know, it's very special and it's very meaningful to Cooper because he has such memories of that. And I guess it was a couple of years ago we had set the table and all that and he noticed that something wasn't there 
He was like, where's, you know, whatever particular thing it was. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I didn't put it out this year. He's like, no, no. Like, it, it, it's interesting to me what he's so connected to. Yeah. But it's persistence of memory. I always say that if I have a holiday and I leave out a dish and the kids will say, where is it? And I'll say, I don't mean China, I mean a food thing. I'd say, right. well, no one likes it. And my son would say, it doesn't matter. It has to be here. And I understood. That's their history, their grandparents, their security in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so tell me, by the way, guys, I'm talking to Melissa Rivers, Lies My Mother Told Me, her brand new book. So what are you up to now? I'm sure that when the book came out and it's been you've been getting a lot of press that you've had a lot of interest in going a step further and doing something more with this. What are you thinking? Um, I don't know yet. There's there's people are just, you know, just starting to get interested. It just came out uh, April 12th, I believe, April 10th. It yeah. was actually you know, dropped. So, you know, people are sniffing around. I have so many other projects going, you know, starting with my podcast and a couple of scripted projects. And it's, 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 it's very interesting to me that this is the book that people are like, Oh, you know, this could be interesting. And you want to be like, right. you guys are just catching up. That's <laughs> well, you know, it sometimes takes a little time. And your mom always used to say that even though famous, successful, she was not part of Hollywood or part of any of those inner circles. And do you feel that way? You were a Hollywood kid. 100%. I, I you know, everyone's always like, oh, you know, can, you know, when I was with the podcast, they're all like, well, you can get anybody you want. And I'm like, I don't know anybody. I I was raised in such a non-Hollywood environment and I continue I've continued that my close not I have one close friend from college that is in the entertainment business. Right, and that's I have Penn, one, right? Right, I have one that's a documentarian. And then outside of my that being my inner circle I have other friends sort of in outer layers that are in the entertainment business, but I'm not hanging out with anyone that the paparazzi would care about. Right. It's just not who I am and it's not who my life, you know, my life is much more. And, and, but also that's how I was raised. Mm. And Cooper too. He's not a Hollywood kid. No. And again, he went to school with some kids you know, who had famous parents or famous grandparents. Mm. But I also think it's how, how you differentiate. And, you know, I had a, such a traditional childhood where we sat down to dinner every night. And, and you know, to the day my mom died, her friend, my friend called her Mrs. Rosenberg. Mm. So, Which is so that's interesting, sort of the way, right? So interesting. And that's how Cooper was raised. Well... You're doing a great job. And as I said to you in the beginning, 
Your mom would really love this book. It would give her a lot of laughs and a lot of pleasure. So thank you. All the best to you, Melissa. I look forward to talking to you again and following your interesting life and career path. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Joan, you know how much we love you. I thank you, Melissa. Lies, my mother told me. I'm glad that you understood how funny the book is. Yeah, but it's funny. But you meant it to be funny. Yeah, but people keep asking me, which is crazy, did she really say and do these things? And you're like, (laughs) no. She wasn't psychotic. (laughs) (laughs) She was just funny. She was just funny, and I got to channel that. Yeah, it was great. No, I'm telling you, they'd both be proud. All right, honey, take Thank care. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll talk again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Come join the Joan Hamburg Show every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. We bring you the best guests, the best information, whether it's where to eat, what to buy, or how to take care of your health. Remember, Sundays, 2 o'clock, the Joan Hamburg Show. Joan Hamburg, today at 2 p.m., entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Entertaining and informative talk for New York. Streaming now on your smart speakers. Play 77 WABC. Before I go to bed, I take a bath. I look at my wonderful bathtub, the great tile, and I thank my lucky stars that I found Bath Fitter. Make your bathroom, your bathtub, a fabulous-looking great place. I'm in love with Bath Fitter. You, too, can have a bath fitter, a bathroom that you're involved in. You sit down with these people. Treat yourself to luxury. No mess installing. No demolition. This is done in a day and custom crafted. Bath Fitter in business for over 36 years. Bath Fitter has a lifetime warranty. Great financing options. Call Bath Fitter today. You tell them. Joan Hamburg sent you. You want what she has. 877-792-BATH. 877-792-BATH. Coming up tonight at midnight on the Dominic Carter Show. The race for New York governor. Might this be the year that the Republican candidate Lee Zeldin upsets the Democratic nominee Kathy Hochul? That's coming up tonight at midnight with me, Dominic Carter, 77 WABC. It's Ramsey Mazda's Sundays with Sinatra. This Sunday night starting at 6. Strangers in the night. With your host, the vice chairman of the board, Joe Piscopo. It's the good life and the way you look tonight. It's Ramsey Mazda's Sundays with Sinatra. This Sunday night starting at 6. With me, Joe Piscopo. On Music Radio. WABC. News, opinion, and information. Never miss a headline. Like 77 WABC on Facebook. The best of the Joan Hamburg Show. The first lady of New York Radio. Best of. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I had a little sneak preview of something really extraordinary. A three 
part series. Well, it's actually a three-night event over this weekend, President's Day weekend, Abraham Lincoln. And this is the biography of our 16th president and the man who took our country during horrible times. You know, I know how many of you have complained, feel this is the worst time, everything is bad, we don't have leadership, we're falling apart, we have threats of war. Watch this. Watch this biography. You're going to go and see again the bloodiest war in history. And yet you're going to see a man who did not come from privileged background, a simple man who took our country through that war, through its enormous crisis, not a perfect man, and yet became what some people consider the best president that we've ever had. A Pulitzer Prize winning writer, author, lecturer, scholar, historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin. She executive produced this. And it was predicated, actually, on what she wrote, her book, Leadership in Turbulent Times. And there's so much about Lincoln that we thought we knew that we don't know. Welcome to you, Doris. Oh, I'm glad to be with you again, Joan. Absolutely. No, it's wonderful to be able to talk about Abe and Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) And especially, I'm telling you, it was every time I think we're in the worst of times, where are the leaders, where's the hope? I looked at this biography and it was extraordinary. Those times were absolutely horrible, worse shape. If we can say that, then we are in now, or at least the perception is. And we got through it. I mean, that's the important thing to understand, you know, that we know the end of their story. We know that the war was won, that the Union was restored and emancipation secured. But the people living then, the people you're watching on this miniseries, they did not know how their story would end. They had the anxiety we're having today. So I think just having seen what it took to get through that and know that eventually we emerge stronger has got to give us some hope that we've got this chapter of our own still to write. And it depends on what we do, that how it's going to end. And it also depends upon a leader. Here we have a president, an unlikely president, but the president who understood. And it wasn't only about ambition. It was about being a human being and listening and empathy and funny at the same time and doing what he thought was right for the country, not right for him politically. So here you have this guy. He saved the Union. He won the war. We saw emancipation. And we are hungry for something like that to happen again. Is it possible? We've got to believe that it is, right? I mean, otherwise, if you don't have the belief that it's possible, then there's no chance that anything can happen. And when you think about it, I mean, what the History Channel and Beth Lasky and I as executive producers tried to do in this miniseries was to show the journey that Abraham went from being a young kid at nine years old with his mother dying and struggling with his father and struggling to get an education, only one year of formal schooling, losing his first election to the state legislature, coming back with resilience. But because of the quality, one of the ones you just mentioned, empathy, ability to listen, to learn from his mistakes, all those emotionally intelligent qualities that we think are so important in our everyday lives, 
we have to have in our leaders. And he had them. And you follow him on this journey, and I think you root for him as a human being. You want him to win. And then when he's in that office with the terrible anxieties and the pressures, and he's able to use his humor to give him a life-preserving capacity to get through it, you just feel by his side, I hope, and, and know that you're going to be with him and root for the country and him at the same time. Right, and you knew that he was a human. He got depressed. He he lived through all the emotions that we tend to forget what our leaders do. But he's an example of what a leader should do. And when you think about the stepmother, who really, not his father, his biological father, but his stepmother, who knew that there was something in this gangly, skinny young kid where he could <laughs> right. do something. Yeah, this is where, you know, we know from history's sake that she was so important to him because she comes into his life after his father has left him and his sister there, you know, for seven or eight months to go find another wife after Lincoln's mother had died. And she gives him love. She understands his talent. She gives him books. And I think some of the most emotional scenes that are in the filmed part of the miniseries are when she first comes into the house and she makes that house a snug and comfortable home. And then later when he has to say goodbye to her, when he's on his way to Washington to become president and knowing what she felt for him and what he felt for her, he was very lucky. This is a case of a very good stepmother rather than our normal traditional understandings right, of it. The wicked witch. No, it, it is rather incredible. But what, when all this is said and done and you are one of our leading presidential historians and writers. What does it take to really be a leader? Is it the same as when we went back to the 1860s and around there? Or are these times so different? Is there so much anger in our country? You know, I guess what we can take hope of is looking at the 1850s you know, as a forerunner in a certain sense for where we are today in the sense that the country was becoming more and more polarized. We had a partisan press. I mean, if you were getting your news in the 1850s or 60s, the only way you could get it was by the subscription to your party newspaper, which meant you're reading a Democratic newspaper or a Republican newspaper. And there was a same disagreement among facts that we have today among cable news and social media. If Lincoln was in a debate with Douglas and he had, was being written up in the Republican newspaper, they'd say he was so triumphant. He was carried out on the arms of his supporters. You read the same debate in the same time and you read it in the Democratic newspaper and he was so terrible that he fell on the floor in embarrassment and had to be dragged out. But that's the problem. That was one of the things that was beginning to divide the country more and more. You see symbolic things happen that one thing like January 6th when Charles Sumner, and this is captured dramatically in the film, in, in the filmed version of the miniseries, um, he's, he's struck on the head by the Charles, by Char Charles Sumner, the anti-slavery senator, struck on the head by Preston Brooks, the South Carolinian congressman, to, with such damage that he goes into unconsciousness. But somehow the fact that it happened in the Senate multiplied the feelings in the North against slavery and helped to create the Republican Party. And yet in the South, he was viewed as a hero. So you see those two different ways of looking at the same event that sadly we're seeing with January 6th as well. And that only deepens the polarization in the country. It's an extraordinary job. It's History Channel's three-night series, Abraham Lincoln, over President's Weekend. And executive producing it is Doris Kearns Goodwin. 
congratulations. Thank you so much. I look forward oh, to you, talking Joan. to you. Thank you, Joan. I'm so glad you've had a chance to look at it. Oh, I'm really it was, proud of it. So I hope it, people will feel the same way. No, it was Yay. extraordinary. And you know what? It made me feel hopeful. And I haven't always felt like that, you know, that things are going to happen. And we've just got to have trust. And we, the people, have to remember that it's about us, too. Exactly. It's, government's not a foreign body. Government is us. It's we, the people. Absolutely. Thank you. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joan. Take care. Anytime. I'll talk to you again, I hope. I look forward to it. I'm Joan okay, Hamburg, bye. and you're listening. Goodbye. You're listening to WABC. Stay tuned. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.